this is Chris. Hey, Chris, it's Andrew. Hey, Andrew, what's up? Hey, uh, for legal reasons, I have to tell you that I am recording this. Um, well you are you are my lawyer so well that's uh for legal reasons i have to tell you that that's not necessarily true (laughs) (laughs) um yes i understand this is being recorded so i'm dropping Um, the down the wormhole uh crossover on our feed tonight i think I know that you mentioned down the wormhole in a previous episode as a thing that you're into, but you do want to tell folks like what it is. Yeah. Down the wormhole is um, a podcast at the intersection of faith perspectives and science. Um, The voices on the podcast come from different religious backgrounds or education backgrounds, um, including Christian pastors. um, And the word I am. There's a rabbi on there, right? That's the word I was looking for, rabbi, um, and and they're talking about um, different different aspects of science. Um, in our episode, we talk about um, climate change. That's right. The, that's so we the, sat down with them and had a, had a conversation about climate, the intersection between climate change and uh, and racial justice. Right. Cool. Um, I guess that's so. That's what we're going to drop on our feed today. And okay. people will be able to listen to that conversation and they can check out uh, the Down the Wormhole podcast. Do you know where they can check out the Down the Wormhole podcast, Chris? Um, so I found, I found it in two places. Um, you can download the app Podbean. That's um, bean like a, a navy bean. Um, or you can just go to their website. If you just Google Down the Wormhole, um, that'll also take you to where they're holding out their episodes awesome cool well um thanks chris you're welcome bye right talk to you soon spirit of incarceration dwells here and then we're moving by the pack so we moving them and even if you don't then you do because you're cool with them they be like i only went to school with them So awkward, cold, open. We uh, <laughs> we've never done a an actual crossover Jetsons meets the Flintstones style podcast before, and here we are at the beginning here, staring at these beautiful faces, trying to figure out how to do a good intro between the Down the Wormhole podcast and the Color Correction podcast. So how about everyone says hi at the same time? Hi. hi. So you all got that, right? No? All We're right. Here. We should probably introduce ourselves then. <laughs> um, and in lieu of doing some like icebreaker question, because man, both of our podcasts have different introductions mm. and we just want to get down to the actual conversation at hand. So... I am Zach Jackson. I am one of the hosts of the Down the Wormhole podcast, which explores the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. And I'm here with one of my other co-hosts from the podcast. Oh, that's my cue. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, Ian Benz, Associate Professor of Elementary Science Education. And I'm also, as Zach said, one of the co-hosts of the Down the Wormhole podcast. And I am Bethany. I use she, her pronouns. I'm a black woman. And that's important on our Jesus C podcast because we talk about the intersections of race and faith. And I be working, but that doesn't usually have anything to do with our podcast. So <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I'm Andrew. I use he, him pronouns. I'm an Asian guy. Uh, and here we are doing this weird thing throw it over to you, Chris. Yeah, I can't possibly top that awkward introduction of myself. I'm Chris. I'm the white guy on the Color Correction podcast. Um, and like Beth, I, I don't really have much of identity in my work, but um, I love what we do here. It's really important mm-hmm. to me. Y'all ever do popcorn reading in elementary school? 
where like you read a paragraph and then you have to say someone else's name and they have to start up and everyone hates it and it's awkward. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's what just happened <laughs> as grown adults in our own homes. Mm-hmm. And I just want to name it real quick. It's re-traumatizing. <laughs> Very traumatizing. I'm never going to speak to any of you ever again. Well, so those of you who listen to our podcast will have hopefully heard uh, the color correction podcast that we, uh, uh, we we put through the feed a couple of weeks ago. We got some good feedback about that as well. So when I had first approached Chris to ask him about about showcasing one of y'all's episodes as we started our, our series on race and racism and science and religion, he was like, yeah, I'll bring it to I'll bring it to the rest of them. And can we do something together? Because those of you at home, you probably don't realize that Chris and I used to live together. Yeah. Um, we were a part of an intentional Christian community called the Crooked House in Philadelphia for several years before I yeah. got married. Yeah. I think marriage was the reason why everyone left at some point, right? Yes. That is or true. Or got kicked out when Chris got yeah. when it, well, right. I mean, got married. Right? We... <laughs> Those of us, those of us who um, who lived there until Chris got married, blame everything on his wife. <laughs> oh, oh, she ruined our she ruined our intentional community. She Yoko Onoed us. Does she does she en- enjoy listening to your podcast as well? Or um, she may not like this one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, just, no, I'm just throw that out there. <laughs> no, I I I love Becca. I'm I'm actually glad for for everyone in that house, and it was fine. That's right. So I asked Chris, and uh, so we've been we've been kind of communicating back and forth about how we can join forces a little bit, and we thought that um, in in the list of things that we wanted to talk about, environmental racism would be a a good crossover point for us. And so, wherever you're listening to this from, whichever podcast feed you're on, welcome. Um, I hope that you'll check out the other one. And hopefully you'll join the conversations on our respective social media places or real life conversations if you're still into that sort of thing. So my touch point to this is that um, I am a pastor in the United Church of Christ, which prides itself on being a uh, denomination of firsts. We love to tell people that we were the first to do this, that, or the other. That's in some kind of justice way. Though often we're the first, but we're not very good at it. And then we have tons of blind spots that we refuse to answer once people actually point it out. But this is not a podcast about why the UCC has problems. This is about this. So I am on the uh, Council for Climate Justice. And one of the things that we talk about a lot is the 1987 report called Toxic Waste and Race in the United States. And it was the first time that a scholarly work was done that looked at the connection between where toxic waste sites were located and the demographics of the people that surrounded those within like a three mile radius and found that of all of the different factors that would predict where a toxic waste dump would be located, race was the overwhelmingly largest factor that even if you took into consideration uh, socioeconomic status and different locations around the United States, race was still the number one determining factor. And we launched that, and this kind of gave gave momentum to this environmental justice movement that had been starting on the ground, and this started to be discussed in Congress, and there was laws that were passed. and And then 20 years later, we did a follow-up study and found that not only had very little changed, but the things that had changed actually had gotten worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the reasons for that is on us. And by us, I mean white climate activists who, after realizing how important race was in in this conversation, realize that we're not going to get a broad coalition of Congress if we make that a central issue in the 90s. And so instead, kind of just told people like, "Eh, well, settle down, we're going to focus on carbon emissions and things like that. You know, like, like the cap and trade, where, um, where you tell an industry that they can, they can release this much carbon into the atmosphere, and then anything above that, they have to pay on. And then if they if they go under that, then they can sell their, their shares in, in their, and they can brag to people that they're so green. But that in and of itself, 
does not help the people in the community that are mm. affected. It it ignores those people entirely. And um, what we found was that like all of our efforts failed. <laughs> they failed miserably. Like we we discounted the people that were most affected by the environmental crisis. We told them that their issues are secondary. We need to fix the carbon problem right now, and then we'll take care of your injustice issues later. And then are surprised when no one was on board with the problem, with, with our solutions and understood the problem. And like, I'll admit, I'm there. Like I have told people before that we need to fix climate change because if we don't stop the climate from warming out of control, humanity is not going to exist and it won't matter if we have systemic racism or not. And so this needs to be our number one priority right now and everything else takes a back burner. And I realize I can say that sort of a thing because it doesn't really affect me all that much. Mm -hmm. And like if I have a toxic waste dump in my backyard, I can move, <laughs> you know, and, and it also occurs to me that what, what am I saving the world for? Like, what, what am I, what am I preserving? What, what ideal society am I trying to save by ignoring the cries of the majority of people to save a planet? Like, should it, should it be saved? Mm -hmm. um, if, Right. If even the people that are activate that are activists for it don't seem to care about the people who live on it first. Have have you all had interactions with um well meaning but horrible climate activists like myself? <laughs> <laughs> I have not had a lot of interaction with climate activists. And most of the climate activists that I have had engagement with have been approaching me specifically from the angle of trying to incorporate or better highlight how systemic racism plays like a huge role in um, climate change and like um, hmm. environmental uh, concern, right? So like in Philly, there was a huge explosion um, in South Philly last year at a, a gas, what was that thing? Yeah, refinery. An oil refinery, right? An oil refinery. Um, but that oil refinery has existed in like a predominantly black neighborhood. Like it's next to a very predominantly black neighborhood um, for years and years and years. And like even I live in North Philly in a predominantly black um, and impoverished neighborhood. And like I just bought a house here and I know that like I can't plant a garden like in my ground, right? Like I know that that ground is absolutely poison. Um, so anyways, I say all that to say, I don't think I've been, yeah, I, I haven't made a lot of contact with environmental activists, but I feel like the, the systemic racism of the environment has just like been a part of my life and I'm aware of it. So I haven't even considered how in some environmental activists may separate themselves from the race aspect of it. Yeah, I think we're only starting to now come back around and wake up and mm -hmm. realize that how wrong we were. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the other ways that this gets played out is in terms of job creation. This is one of the ways that they hide. You know, the, the UCC put out another report this year that is called, and I have this one in front of me this time, Breath to the People, Sacred Air and Toxic Pollution, which found the top 100 worst air polluters in the country and then found the ones that were that were located within five miles of a large population of children, especially. Mm -hmm. And of course, found the same results about the racial makeup of the neighborhoods that they're in, mm -hmm. uh, the socioeconomic makeup. You're never going to find one of these in the Hamptons or something. You know, these are all in mostly poorer neighborhoods. And mm -hmm. number 56 on the list is here in my backyard. Um, not literally, but just like a mile down the street. Uh, Carpenter Tech, it, they make steel products and stuff. And they are horrible 
pollutants of of the Schuylkill and of the air out here. Mm -hmm. But they're the only industry left in Reading. And Reading used to be this big industrial town and everyone was so proud of it. And there's one factory left and it's killing them. Mm -hmm. But if you were to shut it down or if you were to impose all kinds of new restrictions on it, then they would cry foul and they'd be like, we can't pay our people. We're trying to save the city and you're trying to shut us down and typical liberals with your regulations trying to destroy business and kill jobs. And meanwhile, we're uh, releasing all of these toxins into the air that are causing all kinds of respiratory issues in children and now making people much more susceptible to things like COVID-19, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's, it's just baked into this, oh, but we're going to give you jobs and you have to just kind of implicitly give us your bodies and those of your family and friends. Mm-hmm. That's just insidious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm like the, the intersection always seems to be about economics and what is, what is good for the bottom line. And that's the way it gets sold to to people who are poor. Like, we're going to put this thing in your neighborhood, but we're going to give you a job, mm-hmm. even if that even if that job slowly kills you. Mm-hmm. And well, it seems like it's always we, in, sorry. And then we're going to deny that we did it. Like it's always immediate economics, right? It seems yeah. like it's more of the short term yeah. gains that we can get, and that's the way it's pitched. And so when you go into a neighborhood or a community that you know is already, you know, it's because of systemic racism it's not as expensive to move industry there in the first place because it's easier to get the land right and so uh yeah less of a fight because of political uh weight and political power um that you next thing you know you have as you said uh both bethany and chris the the whole notion of well you know here's your job we got your job um even if i would and this is speculation but i would think that even if people ask about well long-term type things they probably would be told well, we're not worried about that now or something along those lines and that's a lot of mm-hmm. speculation but it seems to me that we the emphasis is always on short-term gains mm-hmm. This is the the inherent racism in most of the environmental the environmental regulations that are put in play, because what they do is they tell like Carpenter Tech, you you have to spend all this money to capture your carbon so that you're not polluting the people around you. But we're not going to give you any financial incentive to do this. And so you're going to have to then then they end up having to lay off people and downsize. The people who are putting these regulations in place are not thinking about the workers that are going to lose their jobs, which are typically already low income jobs. They're just focused on the environment Mm -hmm. without a concern for the people affected at the bottom. And Mm -hmm. So in many ways, like the people who pass those sorts of legislations are just as tone deaf than the people who run the factories. Mm-hmm. I think the Green New Deal is kind of the first time that people have actually put thought about putting money into not only greenifying that, but also bettering the lives of the people that are affected in those communities. Right now, I mean, the way that people talk about it is like some kind of a fairy tale that can't possibly happen in the real world. What are some of the aspects of the Green New Deal? I'm not as I know AOC presented that, but I'm not that mm-hmm. familiar with. Well, it, it it's it's not something that your typical um, Democrat is really cares much for, because they say it's too radical, it's too extreme, mm-hmm. because it it pours a ton of money into creating new industries and creating jobs for people in those communities, as well as cutting those old money industries that are the problem that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And so it's mostly been lifted up by younger activists as opposed to the uh, the older, I hesitate to even say progressives, but, you know, the the Democratic strongholds, your Bidens and Pelosi's and them. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, though, that 
you know, I know we can get more into the Green New Deal in a moment, but you know, a lot of it, you know, yes, it's, it's, I can't remember all the particulars. If it went, I just know that if, if it was truly rolled out how they had hope, how they hope it could happen, it would cost trillions. Right. And so everyone sees that trillions thing and they just say, oh, there's no way we can do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you actually peel it back and look at some of the specifics, you know, a lot of it or some of it is dealing with like, you know, um, renewable resources for energy consumption. Um, that's a, that's a big push. And whenever you talk about renewable resources, you're going to face fossil fuel um, and that lobby. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting, though, is that, you know, what I've said to several people when talking about, you know, climate change, especially with my students, is I've pointed out that, you know, like renewable energy is the future of energy. You know, the world will eventually go that way. And so one of the things that I tried helping people understand is that we could either as a country lead it or let someone else do it because it's going to happen. The technology is, is getting built. You know, countries throughout Europe are, have already progressed into that. Iceland is almost 100% renewable. If not 100% renewable, they have been a while. So several countries are going that route. The world will eventually do it. And other uh, industries or other societies and countries will just say, well, if the U.S. isn't going to lead, then then we will. And we're already seeing that happen. Um, and I know that doesn't necessarily get at this you know discussion about systemic racism, but that's kind of always the push against renewable resources is... You know, you have powerful industry that says, well, no, that's going to take away our money. So fight it and mm-hmm. we'll give you some more money yourself. Right. right? So uh. what I feel like we keep like talking about is the inherent dehumanization of people and workers when you have a system of capitalism. So mm-hmm. systemic racism cannot exist or capitalism cannot exist outside of a space where systemic racism is like at the Right. So everything that we keep coming back to in this discussion really sounds like a lack of recognizing people's like full humanity. Right. So it's easy for environmental activists to distance themselves from the effect of industries that are causing harms to communities because they may not necessarily live in. Right. Or it's easy for companies to say, well, we you can't take our money or um, we can't invest more money in doing this better greener um, because, you know, we're employing people and they really need these jobs when really you really need money. You're not and you're willing to risk the lives of other people in order to make that. So I feel like what we're saying over and over again just re reinforces yeah the dehumanization of black and brown bodies in this country under Capital. Yeah, I, honest. I haven't really put a lot of thought into if environmentalism, and I think my limit, my interactions with environmental activists have been pretty limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably because you do get the sense that a lot of environmental activists don't fuck with us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You have to I keep mean, that in, Zach. You have to keep that in. It's not just Adam who's done it. Okay. And I mean, it is interesting here because we're talking about how um, I, there's a reason that you don't build a, a gas plant in the middle of a suburb, right. and that's because those communities are or have resources and are empowered. Mm-hmm. There's a reason that you go to places where people can't fight back. And I mean, just look at where uh, where the the South Philly Circle of Hope congregation is. Uh, the zip code 19125, the refinery there causes asthma and other health issues for people in that entire zip code mm-hmm. in South Philly, mm-hmm. um, the, a mainly black in, in a mainly black neighborhood. Like, there's a reason that you go to places like that uh, where mm-hmm. people can't resist you. And there's a reason why you even consider places like that. And I think. Right. It's a matter of not really recognizing black and brown folks' humanity, like I said earlier. And I even think there's almost, I wonder if there's almost an element of like the black or particularly the black body being stronger. Like these black folks, they'll just turn it to Mr. <laughs> like, I, like there's not this like real recon- <laughs> recognition of the harm that it could cause to a black body almost like the black body can take more because it's not quite human. 
I, I, I find, I mean, I'll be, I, I also try not to think about this too much because I find it horribly depressing. It is. <laughs> I mean, just like the coronavirus situation, you know, coronavirus, right. we were talking about this, Beth, coronavirus showed up and we were like, oh, maybe black folks can't get it. Oh, I wish black folks couldn't get right? it. Right. Maybe this is the one thing yeah. that doesn't, that because doesn't, like uh, yeah, maybe this is the one thing that doesn't exacerbate existing inequalities. Mm-hmm. Maybe and it'll then, just go after right. white folks, <laughs> but now um, you're three times as likely to get it if you're black or brown, mm-hmm. because that's what happens with these crises. Crises, right. they these existing inequalities exist, and then this thing comes around. Whether it's Hurricane Katrina, whether it's coronavirus, whether it's any one of these things that I mean, you could arguably tie go tie back to the fact that the climate is changing, mm-hmm. um, and and the people that suffer are the people that are under resourced. And are already dealing with other things, and these are the people whose lives are lost. Mm-hmm. Um, right, like Philly is significantly hotter than other places. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't right. know why. It's because One of the y'all concrete stuff. Oh, yeah, okay. it's all the asphalt. Yeah, yeah. They were paying people to paint their roofs white for a while. City, oh, yeah, cities are hotter, but your urban right. areas are usually right. hotter. And not only that, but you can tell which parts of the city are wealthier because of which parts of the city have whiter roofs. Mm-hmm. Because the white roof, am I getting this right? It like reflects the sun, like the polar ice does. Yeah, yeah. right. So that the, the parts of the city that have older, like roof designs and technologies are still absorbing all that all that light and are getting hot, hotter. It's like these things. Mm-hmm. just exacerbate these existing inequalities mm-hmm. and it's uh it can be really overwhelming it is overwhelming have you all heard where about the where your trees are oh yeah in neighborhoods oh that's another one right where trees are yeah. in philly wealthy neighborhoods yeah. obviously mm-hmm. oh see I, i've only been to philly once maybe so i, I yeah. didn't realize but that's a really good point mm-hmm. yeah and it, it has more to do with like what neighborhood like when a tree falls where like where will a tree get replanted because um, the dynamics are such that like neighborhoods that used to be wealthy are not anymore. And so there's like old trees, but then it's also about like, will a new tree come in and replace that old tree? And that mm-hmm. is definitely has everything to do with wealth in a neighborhood. And and I'm assuming the wealth leads to political power. Right, right, right. We should mention that actually you can get a free tree in Philly if you own your home. But that is the that is the catch. You have to own that, your home. That's. That's mm. where the wealth gap takes its, yeah. What kind of tree do they give out? I want an apple. Oh my gosh, all kinds of trees. This is a little This is a little inside episode shout out to the Philly Horticultural Society. And you can find out from your local neighborhood greening group what kind of a tree you can get. Every but they won't give you fruit trees, will they? Will they give me a fruit tree? Um, I have to say, our, our um, hawthorn is actually a fruiting tree. It makes little berries huh. that we can eat. Because all, the, the, all the trees that are owned by the city that are on the streets are specifically bred to not fruit because they don't want it to attract animals. So there are people in cities now that are gorilla grafting, fruiting mm-hmm. uh, trees onto them so that in a couple of years, you know, plums start coming down and apples start coming down and whatnot. Yeah. So, Hilarious. So, and I don't, I don't know where in, our, where in our neighborhood they came from, but there's a peach tree on, on Baltimore Avenue. There's a pear tree on Chester. That's, That's amazing. <gasps> so trees, free, so you have to own your house. Boom. Yeah, there's always a catch, right? <laughs> but Andrew, I, you're right about it being depressing. You know, when and that's part of what with what we're dealing with right now. You know, if we look at the pandemic, um, the racial injustice, like I mean, just everything coming together, it it's it can be very depressing. I I at my at my church several years ago. I've done a few series on science and religion with our rector and, and we always had a theme and our second year we did it was our theme was climate change. This was 2015. And, and I had a friend of mine from my university who was a climate scientist come up, come and do a talk for us to delve into the science. Cause you know, we, neither of us, myself and our rector could really do it justice. And afterwards, a, a, someone came up and said to us, you know, one of the parishioners that she, it was so depressing to hear it, you know, just saying that, you know, what do we do? You know, it yeah. just seems like it's over. And his response is something that I've said a lot too, 
is that, you know, as a parent, he has to believe it's not over. Hmm. So even if you're not a parent, you know, if you have a connection to children in any way whatsoever, you have to believe it's not over. Mm, I just be like, I feel sorry for you. (laughs) (laughs) All my friends are having kids Um, and I'm just like, sorry, little bro. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to leave this plastic straw right here. (laughs) Number one thing you can do to decrease climate change is to not have kids. So So I'm a hypocrite. I had two. Yo, check us out. I had them at the same time, though. The color correction people are so. We are. None of us None of us <laughs> We're doing. A, I'm doing my part. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Good activist. <laughs> Congratulations. Did you all have you all heard about the study that that um, linked uh, leaded gasoline with with violence in in the city? What? No. Yeah, you know, for for a couple decades that there was lead in gasoline, right? Which to stop the knocking in the engine, which is just purely cosmetic. It didn't really damage anything, but it was put it pushing out lead into the atmosphere which everyone knew was kind of a bad idea the guy who invented leaded gasoline actually had to take time off to go because to, to germany because he was had lead poisoning and the people in the factories were dying of lead poisoning like this was a thing that they knew it's a whole other episode about that but <laughs> like 20 years after they started there was this big rise in in violence in in cities and in like places that were more enclosed where you might mm-hmm. imagine there's more exhaust and then in the 1970s or so they they cut it they made it illegal and you can see like a generation after that crime rates go down in cities because one of the things that happens with lead exposure as a child is it doesn't allow your your uh Part, in your prefrontal cortex, one of the parts up front I can't believe I got has to do right. with. Woo, there you go. <laughs> you, won this, you won this round of Jeopardy. That was pretty good. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> well, whichever part is is in charge of decision making, that that was that was diminished in children that were born in cities that had high lead in the atmosphere, and so they made bad decisions. And they weren't able to keep their anger in check. And it had nothing to do with like, like you take 10 black children, 10 white children. It was like, it was across the board. It got blamed on like black on black violence in, in the cities in the, you know, in, in the, the sixties and seventies and eighties, but it had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with lead in the atmosphere and in the places where there's the most cars, where there's the most, there are the most gasoline burning, where those are the places that had the most in lead poisoning. But then once they cut it, it went away. Mm-hmm. And kids developed better, and maybe maybe that's um, actually one of the things that's like preventing some of this um, this progress environmentally is like all our leaders have lead poisoning. You know, I you laugh. That's actually a theory that's thrown out there. But I say that to say that like there was a problem, and it caused like real uneven problems in, in, in parts of the cities, and what then we fixed it. I mean. What? Ferguson, or not Ferguson, what's the country, what's the um, city in Detroit where they, like, their water is totally unusable? Oh, you're talking about oh, Flint. Flint, Michigan. No, Flint, Michigan. we solved one problem. We solved one problem with lead in, in the air mm-hmm. and we're able to fix like a huge systemic issue in that one thing. So mm-hmm. like, I hear that and it gives me hope that we can fix the next thing and like we can get Flint water because they still don't have it. Mm-hmm. But you know, the money that, that rich people raised to fix Notre Dame in the first day could have fixed all of Flint twice over. But, but people don't have an issue with poisoning black bodies. It's like people don't have an issue of disposing of black bodies in prisons, right? Like, I keep saying this. I always have, like, one theme of a word every episode, but it's a it's the dehumanization, right? Like, yeah. 
Notre Dame is a dope building. I think I was there when I went to Europe <laughs> as a teenager or whatever. It's super cool. It's super old. Uh, the guy's still there ringing the bell. But like that is such a European. He's not. Um, Nostradamus? Is that who you're talking about? <laughs> Nostradamus. <laughs> Um, but that's such a Euro- European icon, right? So the the value of it is inherently way higher than a predominantly Black city, right? People write, and it's unspoken. And I think even people that probably listen to me say that will probably be like, no, but it's Notre Dame, right? But if right. you really break down why Notre Dame feels so much more important than this city that currently has people and children that are suffering in it. The difference is black. Mm-hmm. That is interesting. And maybe that's why I sense a certain amount of tension with environmental activists because appealing to white people, even though the brunt of the problem is on under is on um, underprivileged communities, but but appealing to white people is a way to get money and support. Like, do, do people care if 19125 has more asthma? I don't know. But people care if whales are dying. Mm-hmm. Y'all remember when the whales swam up the Delaware River in the 90s? And, like, all of that area, we were all just, like, fixed to the TV of who's going to save this whale. I remember, I remember uh, Clinton was was on the news talking about this whale that was in the Delaware. Um do y'all, any of y'all remember this? No. <laughs> My sister wrote a letter to President Clinton telling him that he needed to save this whale that was in the Delaware. Had when was lost. it? Yeah, what year? Sometime in the 90s. Did they save it? What happened? It, yeah. yeah, I think it turned around eventually. It was a, it was a white whale. That's the species. <laughs> oh, God, I'm going like, the wrong way. <laughs> right, that's what they called them, like the wrong way right whale. <laughs> it was this big thing. <laughs> right, not to keep going but, down the Delaware. <laughs> it was 1995. Oh, I wouldn't remember. Someone would Google it. This round goes to. I would have just been five years old. So mm. I, I was living in Germany at the time. So whatever, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Germany. <laughs> <laughs> you know when you talk about about people feeling hopeless and overwhelmed. When when you say something like that, Andrew, that like in order to get something done, you have to appeal to white people and you have to make them care and make them get money. Like that makes me feel super hopeless. Mm-hmm. And white people are going to care. <laughs> like as a white person who knows a lot of white people and is myself a well-meaning white person who still like has 10,000 blind spots. Like it just feels like impossible so many days and like <laughs> i'm not asking y- you to tell me that it's not and to 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 make me feel better this is uh <laughs> right isn't that like the thing that white people do is that we 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 cry about how hard it is and then we're like <laughs> can make you me help feel me better. feel better tell me it's not going to be all bad um so never expect that from andrew <laughs> no <laughs> I'm dragging you down with me. <laughs> I've listened to the podcast enough to know uh, who I'm talking to. So. Uh, I mean, if you, no, I hear that for sure. Go ahead. No, I, well, I was just going to say if um, Rachel, our resident rabbi, were here, she would she would say um, like, "There's got to be, there's got to be some hope. What's what's the what's the the good news coming out of uh, coming out of this? Like, what's our hopeful future?" look like what's what's our our pie in the sky ideal world that we can work towards um are you asking zach i am like what what does the what does a future in which people are actually valued as uh as humans like what what does the the future infrastructure look like what does environmental activism look like when we care about the people who are affected as much as we care about the grizzly bears yeah you know I um I don't I think some of the the future that I I see kind of like in in the in the backyard right off like right around that refinery um is um Bartram Gardens which is the oldest horticultural or or oldest garden in America 
and oh, that's cool. has a has a um has a really cool um community garden and is right behind um Bartram Village which is um government housing um and they've put a lot of effort into um into connecting with with the folks that live there um many of the many of the people who work and tend the garden are black and brown um there's like there and there's like been some good outreach over the last couple of years happening there. Um, I th- and I, I think that's it. It's like it's the it's bringing it's really being led by by oppressed people in the in the turnaround. Um, first first and foremost, maybe activating some of the people who like have never walked back there, and and they those folks exist in our um. In our neck of the woods, the person we got the tree from, or the uh, the organization we got a tree from, is um, University is UC Green, University City Green, whose director right now is a is a black woman. Um, there are some amazing environmentalists in our city who are black and brown, um, and I and I, I'm going a long way about this, but I think like those people leading the charge. Um, and and casting the vision is going to be one of the things that saves us. I agree. I mean, I, I yeah. I think of it like I want to be able to find ways. You know, I'm not familiar with Philadelphia at all, but you know, I like what you were just explaining, and uh, you know, the black and brown people you were describing who are trying to lead that effort. And I agree with you that it, it's good that they are the ones leading that effort. One of the things I would love to be able to see is to get white environmentalists to back them up yeah. in some way. You don't yeah. be part of that, not lead it. I don't, I'm not suggesting they lead it, but yeah. be part of it. Because my concern is, is that, you know, and, and I've learned a lot of this, you know, as a white male over the last several years about um, the white savior complex and not, approaching things in that way. And it took me a while to realize why that was bad, right? And how my the way I can have a, a larger impact on trying to address the systemic racism in our society is to have an impact within my own demographic, which is white males. Like, that's what I need to focus on. And, you know, it took a while to get there. But you know, when I finally got there, it was like a light bulb went off. And so I kind of see it as the white environmentalists out there who do care about issues that are impacting communities of color, environmental issues that are impacting communities of color that they need, instead of trying to go into, and this is just me speculating. I'm just kind of curious, instead of having them go into the communities of color and say, we're here to save the day. It should be that they go to within their own community and say the systemic racism that's been going on since the very beginning of this country is the reason why this, this shit's happening we need to do something about it. You know, that we need to step up to the plate and help the the leaders from those communities to make it better. Right. I I would love for to figure figure out how to make that happen. And people have to actually care. But as Bethany, you talked about many times what was the phrasing you were mentioning about with dehumanization. A dehumanization. Right. You know, and and it needs to be that, you know, as I've tried to help people from my own church community who are white. You know, with our first episode on our series about race and racism, um, and you know, and, and recognizing again that as a white male, I have to help. I can help the greatest by within within the white male community um, is to try to get white males to and uh, just white people in general to care about. As I was saying, the dehumanization uh, that happens in those and and communities of color that are bit that rely or that are centered around environmental issues. I mean, yeah. The thing that stops me to some extent, we can't be completely hopeless because we're, because we're, we're, we're activists, but we're also people of faith and kind of (laughs) hope kind of comes with the territory (laughs) of being a person of faith to a certain extent. I do think that what, what is empowering communities of color is is environmental activism i mean just look at philadelphia for instance like nice town a neighborhood in north philly that had that has been and continues to try to stop a gas plant from being built there 
like when a community like that is empowered to stand up for itself and stop a polluter from entering into it, like that is good for the community and that is good for the environment. When a community like Flint is able to address its water issue, the lead in the water, like that's good for the community and that's good for the environment. You know, it's and, and we're we see people who care about these things and fight for them. And I think a lot of our work is getting all kinds of people to pay attention to these patterns of dehumanization that we contribute to and that we're stuck in. And I think our hope a lot of the time as people of faith is that these, this ongoing, this work that we're doing, this holy work that we're doing is going to, is, is mm-hmm. going to lead us somewhere. Um, and we, I mean, we encourage ourselves with um, stories from our faith tradition, but also people that we admire in the community that are doing this kind of work like Chris was talking about, or examples of successes we've had. I mean, that's what we hold on to, that kind of hope. Mm-hmm. It does feel it does feel pretty mm-hmm. desperate a lot of the time. But that's why it helps, I think, to be I can only speak for, for myself as a person of faith. Like that's why it helps to to believe that like God is on our side and at the end of everything, God wins somehow. Uh, and we get to be part of that. Somehow. <laughs> yeah, I was I, I come back to something uh, during one of our climate change episodes. I was lamenting the fact that how do I create a narrative that is com- a, a narrative about sea level change, for example, that is compelling to someone who lives in Kansas? How, how, how can I create a narrative about this that can somehow appeal to everyone? Mm, because it mm-hmm. feels like we're all just siloed in our own little interests. Right. And one of our, our hosts, Kendra, she said, she says, you've got it all backwards. What you're looking for is like a really good sermon that rouses people to action. And then everyone gets up and applauds and goes and saves the world. And that has literally never happened before in the history of the world. Most of the time, if there is some kind of rousing speech or some kind of narrative story, that compels people to action, it usually doesn't last for very long. That doesn't make the kind of systemic changes that we're after. The only thing that does is a continued message, mm-hmm. is saying the thing so many times that it just becomes normalized mm-hmm. instead of it being some inspirational speech. And so in many ways, the work is being done by the fact that it's not as radical to say these things than it would have been 20 years ago. Right. Especially I take in, some hope in communities that. of faith, actually, like making the connections between the environment um, and like and having the audacity to like do it during a Sunday meeting. Well, you couldn't mm-hmm. always do that. It's just I think what's if you go back to Andrew, what you were saying earlier about what can be depressing about it all is the time it takes can be very, is another thing that at times can be very depressing that, you know, you talk about Zach, you're saying that, you know, 20 years ago, you couldn't do this and stuff, but you know, it, it, the implication there is it took us 20 years to be able to, to say those types of things and normalize these types of conversations, you know, <laughs> um, it's just, it's so, it can be so frustrating at times just be like, you know, and that's, you have powerful people who fight change, you know, because it's, you know, change is hard and people hate that. And I'll, I mean, I'll go and call us out too. It's typically white males. Sorry. No, you're not. <laughs> it's usually white people, especially white males. So any of my friends out there right now who are white males. If you get mad at me, suck it up, you'll be fine. <laughs> so, because those are usually the powerful. Sadly, that's how it, it's worked for the most part. And it really is depressing um, when you step back and look at that. But, um, you know, I, I'm hopeful that the things we're seeing right now um, with all of the protests going on and the the loud voices that are coming out and emerging from the Black Lives Matter movement, um, that it just it keeps going. You know, I'm, I'm so hopeful it keeps going and you know i want to do my part within my community to help keep it going i don't want it to die down like you know the voices tend to 
at least the voices don't go away. They're just not as they're just not heard because mm-hmm. of the next news cycle that happens and people just forget to listen because it always comes back to, well, it's not really impacting me. So what's the point? You know, also really important for white people to recognize that the things that are affecting the environment and that will eventually affect y'all are presently affecting people. It kind of makes me think of, I think Andrew, you've said this, I'm going to mess it up, but like every dystopian story isn't about a dystopian future. It's about the moment in which it would affect white people. Um, and that's kind of what I think of when I think of like, that's a really good point. Yeah. Movie world. It's not World War Z. There aren't zombies (laughs) in the hood either. I promise. Actually. Yeah. Um, but, uh, what movie is it with Jake Gyllenhaal where the world, all the, all the like seasons just go crazy together. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, the day after tomorrow. Yes. Oh my Um, God. Such a terrible movie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what'd you say he's Jake a John Hall is in that movie he um, was in the library it was his dad Dennis Quaid mm-hmm. Dennis Quaid was the climate scientist anyway sorry oh, sorry about but anyway I don't know why out. that's the first movie that I thought of I think I just like Jake Gyllenhaal but like <laughs> that movie is about this white guy reckoning with um environment years and years and years of environmental injustice and how it comes you know to totally destroy the world but like Urban communities, urban black and brown communities are already being destroyed in these mm-hmm. ways. Like you talked about with the lead, where people were mm-hmm. just violent towards each other, right? Like it was literally controlling the way they interact with o- other people, almost like zombies. Like they weren't in control of it. It was the lead that was causing them to be violent in this way. Um, so I think, yeah, maybe that's been my issue with environmental justice folks is that they distance themselves from the black and brown community so often that are presently affected by it to talk about this distant future that really that future is now for black and brown folks. So when you talk about when you, you know, if we step back just for a second, talk about with climate change and sea level rise, right? And so in my state, North Carolina, uh, we were famously made fun of by Stephen Colbert when he was in charge of still doing the Colbert report because people were pissed off. Um, a particular community uh, or organization was really angry about the fact that a scientific report was being released by experts in the state indicating that you know, based on the science that we've seen up to this point in the projections based on the climate models, that it would go uh, that the sea level rise would be like three feet, which would be catastrophic to our coastline um and so the a very powerful lobby uh fought it because what they said was is you can't if you do that it's going to hurt our ability to get like insurance and things like that so they were afraid about the the economic implications so they they came back and the state legislature did something really stupid um and pretty much said you could only base future projections based on what's happened in the past so because over the past hundred years, it's gone up eight inches, the, the, that's the projection. You can't base it on actual science. So everyone was just thinking, oh, well, you know, it's not impacting us yet. So it's really not that big of a deal. And then when you pull out conversations about the impact of sea level rise on islands that are island nations that are going away or already gone, people don't care about those because they're not in their backyard, right? They don't want to care about it because it doesn't matter to them because they're not feeling the, the effect. But it's already happening. Isn't that how uh, New Orleans got destroyed in 2005? Was rising sea levels? Mm, yeah, because right. New Orleans is below the sea level. Oh, the okay. levees, the levees broke. Okay. Um, because of the storm. Oh, oh I thought it was rising sea levels. Never mind. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a combination. Okay. Yeah. A storm that was stronger because of climate change. Levees that were already under stress because of sea level rise. Mm-hmm. And now you ask which communities are getting the bigger levees, which communities are getting rebuilt faster, you know, which communities along the Jersey Shore got rebuilt faster. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
over and over again, too. My goodness. It's always that way. The Jersey Shore gets rebuilt every year. (laughs) (sighs) At some point, we should just leave it. Let it just get taken over by the sea. But people don't want to lift a finger, you know, or to try to help those distant island nations because it's, well, it's not impacting me. So why Mm -hmm. should I care about it? But it will. (laughs) Eventually, it will impact us if we don't do anything about it. Um, Sorry. But I also have trouble with white people thinking, framing things as if, okay, eventually this will affect, right? Like, you have to make yourself care about black and brown people now. I was in a DEI training where this white woman worked really hard to explain to white people that they should care about racism because really it does affect them eventually. And I just had to stop her and was just like, like, you should actually just care about other people, even if it doesn't affect you, right? Like, mm-hmm. even if it doesn't affect you at all, you need to care about other people. It's right. going to have to come back to how it's going to affect your property or how it's going to affect your life, how it's going to affect your job 10 years from now. This is the mistake we made with the uh, how we talk about COVID when people, when experts said accurately that cloth masks don't protect you, they protect other people from you. And then people are like, I don't care about other people. Mm-hmm. You say right. this doesn't help me. I don't care. And now we're all going to die. So thanks. <laughs> but um, here, as we're, we're approaching the, uh, the end of our time, Chris, you had something, you had a documentary you wanted to mention Right. I did. Um, I just this week met a documentarian who worked at the refinery in Philadelphia, um, who's using his own cell phone footage, um, footage of the security cameras to um, to tell to tell a story about the demise of that that refinery. Um, The film is called Midnight Oil. I'm pulling up the information now. Um, the two filmmakers I, I've met are Bilal Motley, who's the person who worked there, and Dan Papa. Um, so it's it's in production. I, I wish I could tell you about a finished project, project, but like I think the thing I'd like to do is encourage both of our listeners, both of our groups of listeners, um, to reach out if they can. Uh, we have more than two. Yeah, both of, both of our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> Yeah, so I'd, I'd I'd like to encourage both of our groups of listeners to um, mm-hmm. think about contributing, um, getting this work mm-hmm. out there. Um, the person to contact is Dan Papa, um, and the the way to get in contact is Dan at Scribe dot org. Just email him Dan at Scribe dot org. Um, the film Midnight Oil. Be looking for it. Um, it'll get here sooner if we give them money. And we'll have it in the show notes. All right. Cool. Yeah. So I, as a way to end it, I'm just curious. What, what can we, leave leave our two audiences with, our groups our two groups with when it comes mm. to hope on how how to make change. Beth, I think you said it best. It really is about don't don't wait to care about people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> care now. I mean. I don't know how I don't know how hopeful this is, but I do want to talk about this in terms of what Beth was saying. Repeatedly in Scripture, there's this idea that the day of the Lord is coming. You know, there's going to be a time when it when your consequences are going to catch up to you. And repeatedly, what we tell people, like ideally, the reason to care is not just because it's not affecting you, Mm -hmm. but it is going to affect you. What happened in Bangladesh will happen along the Mississippi. You know. Just look at like Singapore, for instance, it had its and, and COVID like it had COVID under control. But what it didn't do was pay attention to it, the migrant community and how the viruses was there. And the United States now, like the, the administration thinks that as long as it, it, the, the, the virus is ravaging communities of color, that we can reopen mm-hmm. because their lives aren't worth as much, you know, but eventually it will get you. It will be at your doorstep. The day of the Lord is coming. Um <laughs> And I think, like, what we can call people to is repentance. Yeah. God is good and gracious. And you, there's, there are things that you can do. Uh, and you can turn your life around and call other people to repentance. Uh, and, I, and I think that's the hope. Mm-hmm. At least I hope that's the hope. Yeah. It's not too late to repent. 
Uh, so, sorry, I got a <laughs> no, really old testament I, there. We need to end it on a Hebrew prophet note. I love it. <laughs> the day of the Lord is coming. Yeah. Repent. Yeah.